This week on Physio Foundations, I'm talking to the other half of Periton Physio, Susanna Periton, about her pathway as a sports physiotherapist, an educator, and a clinical researcher. Welcome to the Physio Foundations podcast for another week. This is a podcast about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. And this week, we've got the other half of Periton Physio sitting next to me in the Periton Physio or Physio Foundation studio, which happens to be at home. And this is the first full episode with Susanna. And it's an opportunity for us to introduce Susanna properly to you, the listener of the podcast. And hopefully we can follow up with many more episodes in the future on specific topics, things that are in Susanna's wheelhouse and special interest areas of hers. But for now, we're going to start with a very general introductory episode. So Susanna, welcome to Physio Foundations. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it. So let's start with a bit of an overview of who you are and what you do. So qualifications and work and current interests. I guess at first I'm a, a sports and musculoskeletal physiotherapist. Um, I work in a clinic on weekends. I also work with a football team and I'm currently doing my PhD fo- full-time. So it's juggling lots of things and and there's family life as well on top of that. The juggle and the struggle is real, but we'll, we'll dive into all those specifics of all the different roles you've got in future episodes. But just tell us a little bit about your foundations, the story of how you first became interested in being a physio? Well, to be honest, I didn't want to be a physio. and uh, There's a spanner in the works. <laughs> I, I enjoyed maths uh, in high school and thought that I would be an engineer and I actually missed out on uh, being an engineer by one point on the specific one that I wanted and I thought I got into a different type of engineering, which was software engineering, which my dad didn't think was as good. And he said, I had to go back to do you 12 over again. I said, oh, I didn't want to waste another year of my life. I'll just do the software engineering and then transfer into the other one that I wanted to do, which was information technology and telecommunications engineering. And he said to me, being the European father that he was, uh, looked at me and said, well, you're either going to waste one year of your life or the rest of your life. So I went back and did year 12. Of course, no offence intended to telecommunications engineers, but you know we're talking about the foundation story of how you got to be a physio. So that's that's actually an interesting question. That's I'm really glad I asked. I've asked people this question because some interesting stuff has come up. So what what next? You get into physio. You've had a really interesting career. Twenty years in. Well, actually, that wasn't what was next because then I wanted to be a vet, and I needed ninety nine out of the 100 and I got 98 when I repeated year 12 and then uh, I did have radiology and podiatry there because I knew they were sort of health related and I I started enjoying uh, health related topics because I did biology, I took up biology in year 13 and um, so physio came on top of of that and that's what I got into and I got really excited um, because I didn't actually understand what physios did. And uh, I did have an idea of sports physio, but a very loose idea. And it was interesting because the first day that we all came to physiotherapy, to the course, there's 80 of us, we're all excited. And the lady there, she 
addressed us all and said, who here wants to be a sports physio? And I remember we all put our hands up and except for one girl who we will always remember, <laughs> she, she was the odd one out. But um, interestingly enough, the, the lady that was addressing us said, well, forget it. It's only 5% of you are ever going to be sports physios. Um, so when you're doing this course, just look at all the other different aspects of physiotherapy and see where you may want to get to um, above your, your sports. And to her credit, I reckon she was right. I reckon about 5% of us did get to go into the sport um, and a lot of others went their, their own ways and it, it's just interesting and that's probably led me to have a very varied uh, early career in physio. Uh, I really was against going straight into sports physio. So I, when I graduated, I went into a rotational role in a hospital and it was really good because it was the first year, normally these roles are in public hospitals and it was the first year, and this was in South Australia, that they were doing it and in a private hospital setting. And the really nice thing about private hospital settings was the, the physios there have a lot of experience and they're, you know, on top of their game and then they don't have as much support staff around them. So, for example, when I was on clinical placement in a public hospital, you know, you'd be there with the head nurse um, and then all her nurses under her and then maybe a couple of student nurses as well as all the, the medical students. Then you've got uh, the registrars and then you've got, you know, the consultant who sometimes came. But you had a whole entourage and I remember my first day and it was, it was I was doing a neurophysiotherapy and the first patient, this is when I had my first job, had just had uh, uh, some sort of brain surgery. And it was me, the head physio and the surgeon and that, and that was it. And it was, it was really interesting because, you know, the other physio, the head physio who was, who took me under my wing because I was the new grad um, rotational, she just taught me everything. Um, and, it, and we had that time and it was really, really, really nice. Um, and I was able to do those rotational work and it got me to realise, you know, you had a, a couple of weeks in neuro, you then had a couple of weeks in orthopaedics, you had a couple of weeks in women's health and you were supported and I think as a new grad that's really, really important mm. in your, your first line of work is to really make sure what support you do have because you learn a lot in university and you think that that's a lot. You think, wow, my mind is bursting at the seams. I cannot fit any more knowledge. But once you graduate, I feel I had one tutor actually say it to me. They said, it's actually once you graduate, that's when you start learning. Mm. Um, because really then it's all up to you. And so you've really got to make sure that that first leap into the workforce that you're supported. Um, I did... You know, I did do that for a year and then I went into a, a private setting because I thought, look, I, I'll, I wouldn't mind doing some musculoskeletal in a private setting and I was given the opportunity 
So, so my colleague said, come, come and work with us. We've got plenty of room for you. Um, and he said that, you know, I said, well, will, will I have support? He goes, well, you definitely will have support because you'll be working with me. You'll be in my branch, in my, my little bit of the clinic. Um, and as I started, he worked Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I worked Tuesday, Thursday. And we were the only physios in this little clinic. And and that's all. And and it was very very disappointing. And but being such a junior, it was very hard to, you know, bring bring it up. How how do you bring that up? So really, I think getting into that workforce, make sure you are supported because if you're not, um, it is very uncomfortable and hard to um, then change it. So mentoring and support are fundamental when you graduate as a part of your pathway. And there's two really nice examples of. A, an opportunity where you had lots of mentoring and support in a rotating role and then an example of where you had, had some support promised to you and it wasn't all it, cracked, it was cracked up to be. So what are some other pitfalls that early career clinicians or new grads should look out for? And, and I guess thinking more about you've had lots of private practice and sports roles. So what are you looking for in those roles as an early career early career clinician I guess the one of the things particularly in private practice because it can be like when you're in a hospital you know you, you have access to people they're all you know they're all around you you're not in a closed room where and one thing that I have found in clinical practice is those clinical practices and I'm, I've worked with you know over 20 places in private practice the ones that have sort of curtains between practitioners are actually quite good. They don't, they don't look good <laughs> because you can hear what other people are saying, but it really does give the opportunity to listen to how other practitioners, uh, you know, do some education or how they explain things. Um, and you can understand what tests they're doing sometimes. Um, I know when I worked in football, the best thing was you had an open room and you either had three or four plinths and, you know, it wasn't just you as a physio, there was a couple of physios and you sort of all worked together and it was nice because you got to, A, look at how the people were working, but B, you could talk about it as well mm. and, you know, what was the goals and, you know, what were the test results, so if they had any imaging, et cetera. So you got to learn a lot um, in that way, whereas in private practice, sometimes you can feel really isolated, particularly when you're in a room that has a door and, you know, and you can't hear anything else. It's really nice for the privacy for the patient, but then for you to, you know, if you're not sure of something, for you to go ask someone, you actually have to really make make it obvious that you've got to leave the room, then you've got to find a colleague and say, look, I'm not sure what I'm doing here. Um, can you give me some help? It just makes it a bit too obvious. So then you tend not to do it. Um, but when I first started, one thing that I used to do when I was in that sort of a situation and I needed more information was I'd have a textbook on hand and I'd have it outside and I'd be like, oh, look, I'm, I'm just going to go out and I'll, I'll, be back, <laughs> I'll be back in a second. And I'd quickly look up the textbook. And if the textbook sort of agreed with what I was saying to the person. So I'd always tell them what I was thinking, you know, now I'm thinking this or I'm thinking that. 
I'd look it up in the textbook. So am, am I thinking of a sprain? Am I thinking of a strain? You know, is it joint? Is it nerve? Is it muscle? Um, what am I thinking? If it was sort of supported by the text, then I'd actually bring the textbook in. Um, and Peter Bruckner and Karim Khan have made a really nice um, textbook and it's got some really nice diagrams, which I thought were fantastic tools for patients in those early sort of years where I'd bring them in and I'd say, look, this is what I'm thinking is happening. And the other thing that the uh, this particular textbook has is it has, you know, you're aggravating, you're easing. So you'd go, oh, look, so this, um, you know, I'm thinking your kneecap, there's something going on. They call it patellofemoral joint syndrome and look, here are some of the aggravating factors, which is what you've been telling me. Here is some of the things that make it easier. And then they can actually see that, you know, you've got some knowledge and it's not a weakness that you've looked it up in a textbook, but it's actually a reinforcement. And then there's some pictures, et cetera. So I really found having that as a tool really, really helped. And not only did that textbook help you in your early career, that's actually the reason we met, but that's another story for another day when we were travelling overseas and I recognised the old red Bruckner and Kahn textbook and, oh, you're a physio, but we'll bring that up some other time. So that is a nice segue, though, to life experiences and the person that you are. Because the theme of this podcast is personal and professional development and then building your own foundation so you can help other people. So when, if you only did your job, and you only identified as your job, um, you probably wouldn't do a good job. What are some of the life experiences that you've had or that have helped shape your career as a physio that you bring into your interactions with patients and you help and helps you be a better physio? I think making sure that physio or your work isn't the only thing you do, so doing stuff outside of it. Um, I actually met my husband Luke here on the, <laughs> the other microphone. Oh, I met him too. <laughs> Um, skiing and it was when I did my undergraduate course uh, a couple of my friends decided let's go rather than uh, spend the summer holidays here in Australia um, let's go overseas and work in the ski fields in America and I said oh okay I'll, I'll be in on that and that's then I met you <laughs> and then I met you again you know five years later but um, and you, so you, you were ski instructing. I was working as a shoveling snow as a ski lift operator. You can see who the brains of the operation is here. So ski instructing, how does how do the skills that you you developed in ski instructing, how do they bring you back? How do they translate to your physiotherapy work? Because you might think, well, that's a working holiday. That's something that's completely separate. But how does that life experience translate to improving what you do as a physio? Well, the interesting thing is it was at the end of my third year of physio that I went. I still had one year left and I took half a semester, a semester off, so half the year, to go do this working holiday. And a lot of people said to me, don't do it because you'll start earning some money and you're not going to want to finish your, your uh, degree. You'll just, you know, go on, go on the realm of finding jobs and you'll get used to making money rather than, you know, the, the student life. But I found it the opposite. I couldn't wait to get back to physio because I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do because working in the ski field, people get injuries and they would come to me saying, oh, you know, you're studying physio, what can I do? And there's lots of things that, you know, I could do and it, and it just 
there's lots of other things that I didn't know. And so I really wanted to get back and finish and start being able to actually help these people with, you know, uh, specific injuries like skier's thumb or, um, you know, ACL, see your knee, all of that sort of stuff and knowing, you know, what is the rehab for that? You know, what what are the next steps when you've done your ACL? You know, what are, you know, what should you be doing if you have fallen over and you've hurt your thumb? You know, how do you know if it's a, a bad thumb injury or is it just bruising, that sort of stuff? Um, so it actually got me more enthusiastic. And then also as a ski instructor or learning how to become one, we had um, some things that we had to learn. And one of the things that we were learning was biomechanics of skiing. And I thought, oh, I've just done biomechanics 101. And then uh, 201 or whatever it was in second year and third year, you know, they always change the numbers, but I just thought, oh, I should be really good at this because we always had a test at the end. So well, I've, I know my biomechanics um, and I did do very well, but I just went, oh, and the things that you learnt in skiing, um, like even just the teaching. So skiing's a bit different. If you've got someone on some planks, some slippery planks, and you're putting them down a hill and they haven't skied ever in their lives, they can, and they don't know how to stop, um, they can pick up speed pretty quick and you're in trouble. Mm. <laughs> so unlike physio, you're not going to give them an injury, uh, hopefully, um, whilst you're treating them. But when you're teaching skiing, if you don't teach them properly, you can um, put yourself in. There's some real dangers there. Yeah. Exactly. So you've got to learn how to teach. And um, the one thing that I really took away from that was how to teach. And they're saying, you know, people, are they learn in different styles. Um, and, then, you know, there's the listeners, there's the doers, the feelers, all of that. So you've got to make sure that what you're teaching, you have to put across multiple ways so people can understand um, in your group. Because some will need to see, well, some people need all the instructions. So start off with the instructions. Some will need a demonstration. Give them de the demonstration. Some people need to do it. Then give them the opportunity to do it. And then some people really like the feedback. So then give them the feedback and then go again. So then you're um, catering to a lot of people in their learning styles. And as a physio, when you're teaching people exercises, that's what I do is, you know, I tell them the exercise, I show them the exercise, I give them some practice time and then I give them feedback. And I get a lot of people that come back and they'll tell me things about the exercises you know, they'll say, oh, it was really good. I, I was, you know, they, they'd tell me the benefits or I don't think I was doing it right and they weren't afraid of saying it. And I had a lot of physio colleagues early on and getting really frustrated saying that they, um, they'd give the exercises to their patients and, you know, what do they expect? They're never going to get better because they haven't done the exercise and they'd lament about their patients not doing the exercises but at the same time you know they just tell them the exercises and off they went they didn't give them the opportunity to practice it they didn't, you know they didn't spend the time to actually teach it properly and I thought you know that reassess that they can do them ask opportunities to ask questions all it, those important things yeah. exactly because there'll be some people that that's all they need but just you know so being able to understand that not just 
what you learn from physio but from other areas, you can easily translate that into it. And also other areas of physio, um, being able to see people post-spinal surgery in that first sort of rotation in the hospital, when I saw people in private practice afterwards, um, so in the rehab setting, I had an idea of what they'd gone through in the inpatient. So when I saw them in the outpatients, I was quite comfortable. And I had a friend that I was working with and he just had no idea. He said, oh, I've got this person that they've just had a microdisectomy at L4 and don't know what to do. And he was really nervous about it. I'm like, oh, you know, and I'd say, oh, have you checked this? Have you checked that? And he's like, oh, maybe you should see them, Susanna. I just don't know. I'm just... I'm just used to sporting injuries because they hadn't gone into that system. They just went straight into private practice. Mm. And so that's one thing about you that you're really good at taking little bits of knowledge from all that different experience you've had clinically and personally and travel and work and sport and, and hobbies and everything you've done and then using that in your professional role and also relating that to the person who's in front of you. And that's something that you've taught me over the years. Let's talk about clinical knowledge and skills. What are the, in your toolkit of questions you could ask or assessments you can do or even the foundational knowledge that sits behind the clinical reasoning that you're doing, what are the things that you never leave at home when you go to work as a sports physio? My brain. Your brain. That's a good start. What's in your brain? <laughs> no, just just think about I've had one clinical educator by the name of uh, Jim Mack and he, he, he was wonderful and he, he would always say, now think about what you think is going on. So you go through the subjective and then there's always a, that one sort of diagnosis that you think that's, that's, that's it, you know. It's got, the, it's got to be that tennis elbow, it's the tennis elbow. It's not, it's not referral from the cervical spine, it's the tennis elbow. And he said, all right, next. Now try and disprove it. So because a lot of times we, we think of a diagnosis and then we do all the tests that will be positive and we don't actually think of all the tests that might actually be positive but they're positive for a lot of other things too. Um, so try and disprove that, you know, that hang, hang on, this may be something else. Okay, so maybe it isn't just a tennis elbow. Okay, I'll make sure that I've ticked off the neck. You know, I'll make sure, you know, that there's no skin sensation loss and all that sort of stuff. So that's one thing. Well, Pete Maliaris on, I think it's episode two or three of the podcast, he brought up the same point and his, his point was the way he came at it was be critical of your own thinking and your own assumptions. So it really links in nicely with that. What about skills or, or even knowledge? Is there something that you learn in university that you still use today that you've would go back to. Well, it's also that sort of layout that they they teach you with the – so let's say you're very good at your subjective, right? So <laughs> I'm going to talk about the subjective because most people – subjectives are pretty good. It's the objective that is where people get a bit unstuck and a bit unsure. And you've got to think, okay, I'm doing this test. So what is this test doing when you're doing it? So if you're doing an impingement test, whether it's the hip or the shoulder, what sort of impingement are you looking for? You know, is it going to be a bursa? Is it going to be, you know, 
a labrum or, you know, what, what are you thinking and does that reflect what you've found in the subjective? You know, I always like to look at, you know, okay, active range of movement, you know, then just range of movement. So am I thinking joint? Then, you know, looking at some strength tests, am I thinking muscle? So, you know, length and strength, you know, am I thinking nerve? You know, is it being referred further than where a muscle could be? You know, does it start at the back and go all the way in the calf? Because there isn't that muscle that goes from there to the calf. And sometimes when you tell that to patients, because you go and they go, oh, you know, I've got this back pain and I've got this calf pain, or it goes all the way down. And they think that it's the muscle. They're like, it, it must be this hamstring. And then I point out, well, well, the hamstring, it stops at the back of your knee. It doesn't actually go into your calf. Oh, <laughs> you know. And just, just pointing things out like that, they go, oh, okay. Um, and then you build a rapport. So I think the other thing that's really important is to talk to the patient as you're doing an assessment because they're there and they're nervous. You know, one of another colleague that um, had said to me, one of my first jobs, his name is John Porter and he's a very good cricket physio. Uh, he said to me, look, Susanna, 80% of the patients you see will get better. And I went, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? And he goes, because they've decided to see you. So they've already acknowledged that there's something that's going on and that you need to um, address and hopefully you can. And so I thought, oh, okay. So when they do see you, they, they're already there and they want information. But if you give that information at a different level, so, you know, very jargony and they're not understanding it, then they're going to be left confused, yeah, and they're not going to know why there's certain things. Like I always get patients from that have seen quite a lot of other health professionals. So whether that's multiple physios or they've seen other allied health, so osteos, chiros, and you're at that point, you know, well, my friend heard that you're a very good physio, so that's um, why she sent me to you. Do you know what I love about that? Is a lot of the times the physios or whoever they see, they do all the right tests and they do, they do, they start off with, with some appropriate treatment um, but what they fail to realise is if you're giving in a treatment, make sure that you follow up with that reassessment of where you think that they should have gone to. So have they improved? And if they haven't improved, don't keep going with that same treatment. I mean, the other day I had someone who was actually uh, a friend of mine said, oh, this patient went in to see this professional, let's call him a professional, <laughs> and they're on their fourth visit and it's it's a mother and daughter and the person was seeing the daughter and she gets into the clinic and she says, oh, you know, I hope he doesn't do that same treatment again because it's not working. And the secretary said, well, make sure you tell him that and, you know, start going on to another pathway. Anyway, she came out. They paid for the same treatment. <laughs> so, well, why didn't you tell him? Oh, just couldn't. So, really make sure that. So, and that's that's why they then come and see me is because they end up getting frustrated. So, number one is if you give a treatment, make sure you understand where you want that treatment to go. And if it doesn't go in the direction that you want it to, or you're expecting it to, 
think of a different way of looking at it. You know, think of your differential diagnosis. The other thing is this may be the opportunity if it's not behaving how you're expecting it to that you may need to um, refer on and that's a really, really important thing. Mm. I mean, I had someone who had some knee pain. Um, We did a whole bunch of work and I thought, oh, maybe this is just bony bruising because you had landed heavily on it. um, Anyway, two weeks later, and I'd only seen him once or twice and it hadn't improved. I said, you know what, I'm not happy with this and you want to get back to running, we have settled it down because we're thinking, you know, let's just think it's bony bruising. It hadn't settled down so we had to uh, refer him off and then he got some imaging and um, we were right. I'm not going to say what he had but um, he needed to go further on into the the other referral. So physiotherapy at that point was not going to help him. So making sure that if something is not behaving the way it should, Think of other things. I'll, I'll put up your answer under the broad category of in, the answer to the question of you know, what are the most important foundational knowledge and skills, in your opinion, for a physio under diagnostic reasoning. But then I'd also say relating what you're thinking to the person in front of you and meeting them on their terms, the terms they understand. And then when you're doing that, you can identify if the person is frustrated because they've you know, come to a crossroad of, or they've um, already had some treatments in the past that have failed and then you can avoid repeating those. So that's a really interesting and good answer to the question I've been asking everybody. So let's move to the final question I have. Now, we're going to go into a more of your interests in future episodes, but just let's talk about research. You're an act, you've been an active researcher since 2009, publishing papers. You're doing your PhD in the moment, at the moment. As a clinician, why are you interested in research? I think all clinicians should be interested in research, let's be honest, um, because it helps support uh, what you're doing. Um, you know, people want to know that your treatment is appropriate and, of course, work cover and <laughs> all those sorts of things definitely want to make sure that you're doing the right thing. But for me, I got burnt out. So I was in a clinical practice and I just and I was working with a football team and this particular football team uh, needed, if anyone was injured, their players needed to be seen before the weekend, even if you were booked out, and I was always booked out. So there goes my lunch and (laughs) there goes, you know, my last appointment and then another one after that, another one after that. Plus then you have to do case notes. So I ended up getting burnt out because I just couldn't handle the hours. I couldn't contain them. And I ended up seeing one of my friends, uh, Dr. Saravana Kumar, um, in his office in uh, the Allied Health what is it, International... Centre for Allied Health Evidence. That's the yep. one. We worked um, there together for a while. We did. And I, and I saw him and he, he was getting a bit frustrated because he said, oh, I need um, some research assistance, but, you know, they're very hard to find because they need to have their masters and we're not going to train anyone up if they haven't got their masters. And I said, well, I've got my masters because, um, you know, he was one of the ones that taught me. And I said, oh, I'd be interested in it. Okay. But we were good friends and he thought I was just joking. <laughs> and then I saw him two weeks later and I said, you never got back to me, you know, do, do you need someone or not? 
so I didn't realise you were serious. I said, oh, yes. Um, so that's how I got into it because it allowed me to have an excuse to actually go part-time in the clinic um, and tell my boss, well, I'd like to go part-time because this opportunity in research has come up. And the one thing about research or research assistance was, you know, you did nine to five. You know, you got there at nine and you finished at five and people were really thankful for the work that you did. Um, and what I quickly found out was as a research assistant I'd be on different projects and I'd be looking up things for that particular project but there'd be papers that would come up that would sort of spark my interest to want to read them. They weren't necessarily related to what I needed to do um, but I did have the time to, you know, quickly skim through them and that is so valuable because in clinical practice you just do not have that opportunity. Mm. Um, you know, you just don't, you know, articles don't just get flown in your face all the time, mm. whereas in research, you know, they're just always there and you, you have the opportunity to have a quick look and then get back on task. And so what I found was doing part-time clinical and part-time research the clinical practice really sort of helps you define the clinical questions that you want to get answered. And the research um, really helps you to know what research there is out there to help um, answer or to help answer your question or understand the gap in the research um, and how you need to sort of put it to what's in front of you. So knowing that research is very what's the word, very streamlined. And the biggest thing that I learned was about evidence-based practice is a lot of people think that evidence-based practice is you do what the evidence tells you to do. But it, it, it's it's got dimensions to it. So it has been defined with, you know, you've got the evidence there, that you know, what the research is telling you. But you've also got your individual. So your individual may be one of those outliers that was in the research that wasn't reported or they didn't really talk about. They, you know, the researchers, you don't know, they, they might have fumbled through <laughs> some of their statistics. Um, the other thing is the clinical experience and that's what one of my mentors, uh, and I know I'm name dropping, but James Schromberg, because I think he's fabulous, he was really, really good and he said, you know, something that you could do is, you know, a case audit, you know, go through. So he had a really nice system which would go up, you know, you'd, you'd categorise all your patients and you could go back and look at all the people would say, uh, I don't know, low back pain and you could see how many times you saw them and if you discharged them or not. So you could actually see how effective you were. Um, but it also, so that clinical practice is really important um, and that's something, or sorry, clinical experience, and that's something as a new grad you need to develop on. And as a new grad, the best thing about that cohort is you know a lot of the research, you know, and that's what the universities do is they, so a lot of the times they'll know more than the clinicians that they're working with in terms of what's the latest. Um, and that And that's a huge strength. But what the clinicians have is they've got, their, the ability to um, also work off their clinical experience and also they have an understanding of some of the individuals that may come in 
and how they respond, which are not necessarily, unless you're looking at a lot of case study um, material, is not necessarily acknowledged that well in the research individual. So it's really important, once again, to be reflective of your own practice. And then you also touched on not just diving into research and then trying to find an answer through research, but considering the person and your own clinical experience. And Matt Pryor talked about that a few episodes ago when he was on the podcast. Ebony Rio also talked about reading between the lines of the research and thinking about what they didn't do, what they didn't report, what they did do in their methods and reading the methods before you read the conclusions. So tying that all together. And so we've got lots more we can cover about hip and groin pain. Your PhD is about hip and groin pain in uh, in football players and following them up, following them up over time and looking at how they, they change. And we'll talk about that in another episode. We've blown all that time. Got to get back and see if the kids are um, okay in the other room. Uh, where can people follow you online? So you're all over Twitter and give the listeners a bit of a summary of your social media and where they can find you online. Um, I'm, I haven't finished my PhD, so I'm not a doctor yet, but uh, when I was in high school, I did want to be a doctor. So, uh, and my name is spelled a bit funny. It's not your, your typical Susanna with an S. It's Z-U-Z-A-N-A. And uh, Susanna at Hotmail was gone. And so I thought, okay, well, Dr. Zuzi <laughs> is what, what I, I made my Hotmail out. At, at um, in year ten, I think. Is this the same as dressing for the job you want? Or just <laughs> the email for the job you want as well. Anyway, yeah. so it's it's Doctor Zuzi on Twitter, um, and I do get a lot of people going. Oh, I always thought you were you'd finished your PhD, <laughs> but um, so yeah, so so I've got Doctor Zuzi on Twitter. Um, it's the same on Instagram, uh, and I think although I don't really use the Instagram, you've had the Doctor Zuzi uh, email for the whole time I've known you. 21 years. There you go. We've, so we've been married 15 years as well. It's, it's pretty funny doing this interview and just letting you talk, which is, again, something that, um, that Luke Nelson talked about in his last episode, the average patient gets interrupted, what was it, in a number of seconds, and can you let them talk for a number of minutes and actually get their full story. So I was trying to do that and let you talk. And it's really funny hearing all these stories in a formal podcast interview and all these times we were shared together. I think... Um, Next time we talk, we're going to get into the weeds of your PhD and hip and groin pain, and um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So there'll be more episodes like this coming up, but we've broken the ice. We've done well. Got Actually, I've, on got, the I've got one more point. Oh, here we go. That, that I would really like to to just put out there is that as a new grad, so the one thing about university is that they teach you a lot and uh, a lot of knowledge. And they have to give you confidence because you don't want to go out there without confidence. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that that makes people think that they know more than they do. Um, and I remember when I first started, if I had a patient, so in, particularly in the private practice, and they weren't getting better, then it then I was bad. Um, so I'm sure, a lot of people would you know resonate with that that's that would resonate with a lot of people yeah and the best thing about you know to to overcome that is to look so physios tend not to just have one physio in a clinic there tends to be multiple physios in a clinic 
and they are your best ally. So if you're not sure of something, yes, you can check textbooks and things, but it's really good to speak to some of your colleagues um, and say, look, I saw this person and this is what I've been doing. Um, what do you think? Um, the other thing, I, I worked in a clinic when I was still a junior and one of the seniors, and it was the best thing, um, they said, look, if there is some someone that you've seen a couple of times and they're not getting better and you think, oh, you know, am I missing something, put them on my list and then I'll have a look and then I'll let you know what I think and then I'll send them back to you. And it was really good because a lot of times it was just little things that you might have missed but it had made a big difference to that patient. So being able to sort of discuss things um, with your colleagues and really work together rather than working in silos. Mm. And, um, yeah, if, if someone's not getting better, do ask other people, you know, what do you think? Um, should I refer them off? What else should I be thinking about? Is there, you know, some differential diagnoses that I'm missing? You know, that sort of stuff. You really don't have to and you, you shouldn't work on your own. It's a really good point. Well, listeners, if you've made it this far, you must have found the episode interesting in some way. So if you, you found it interesting, the chances are someone else will too, but there's a problem here. See, if they never find the episode then they won't find it interesting. So you can help us if you found this interesting by sharing the episode with a friend or you can share it with someone or everyone via social media. So please find the little three dots and find the share button and share the episode with a friend or on your favourite social media channel. Uh, make sure you tag Susanna and I in there, at Periton Physio, and you can find the link or the links to um, all the different podcast players on our website, which is periton.physio. So if you have any other ideas for content you'd like us to cover on the podcast, please email or send uh, a tweet to us as well. Uh, until next time, thanks very much, Susanna, for breaking the ice. This is Susanna and Luke wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. <laughs>